You could be seated. Well, it is great to be back up here to preach for you after eight weeks. Someone's excited, but at least one. Uh, thank you. I, I wasn't fishing for that. But it's been eight weeks since I was up here doing this, uh, and um, that's not typical, so let me just say a word about that. Uh, it is typical for me to not be preaching in the month of July each year. The DSC elders kindly give me a month each year to be working on a writing project. I've been working on a multi-year, multi-volume writing pot project that hopefully will be done before I die. Uh, so that was July, but then this year, after that one-month writing leave, uh, we dropped two kids off at college in Kentucky. Uh, then I had a meeting with some pastors in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, and then we were happy to have Ryan Robertson preach for us last Sunday for Missions Emphasis Week. So that's where I've been and what I've been up to and uh, why I haven't preached in eight weeks. But over those several weeks... Like you, I have been blessed by the preaching of Chase and Caleb and Alex. Haven't you been blessed? We should, let's, yeah, that's something to celebrate. I tell my other pastor friends at other churches, we have a deep bench for preaching here at Desert Springs, and, uh, and I'm blessed to sit under their preaching when I'm not preaching myself. Well, turn with me to Matthew 9 in your Bibles this morning. Matthew chapter 9, as we continue our study through Matthew's gospel account. And as Chase and Alex have both mentioned recently, let me reiterate, just so we keep our bearings in this section of Matthew, that Matthew 8 and 9 make up a tidy section structured with some literary finesse. There are three sets of three miracles and in between those sets of miracles are calls to discipleship from Jesus. So three miracles, and then there's an interaction about discipleship, and then three more miracles, and then a call to discipleship, and that's what we'll see today. And can you guess what we'll see next week? A series of more miracles wrapping up this section. It all is to demonstrate who Jesus is in what kind of kingdom he came to bring. And what we shouldn't miss, especially if we're remotely familiar with these stories, is just how surprising, how shocking, even scandalous all this would have been to those who first saw it and heard it. Matthew has inserted the breadcrumbs along the way the people's reaction, the various reactions. The people were astonished at his teaching at the end of chapter 7. The disciples marveled. They asked, what kind of man is this that can calm the waves? Remember that one town begged Jesus to leave. Another group was afraid while they glorified God. And then, of course, in between all this, some believed and some were changed. Even very unlikely people, like the Roman centurion. So as we open our Bibles this morning to Matthew 9, starting in verse 9, we should be thinking, huh, what surprises might Jesus have in store for us today? What shocking thing will he do or say next? 
Well, let's read it. Matthew 9, 9 to 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Well, there are three overlapping, interrelated scenes or events here in our passage, and all, in some way, relate to Jesus' interaction with, in relationship to, sinners, each with some element of surprise or even shock or scandal to it. The first, we could call a call to follow. That's verse 9, verse 9 alone, a call to follow. And here's the surprise right up front that Jesus calls a tax collector, Matthew, to follow him. And double shocker with just that word, follow, Matthew does. He does indeed follow him. Now Jesus has already, back in chapter 4, called four fishermen to be among his closest disciples just so you can get sort of a breakdown of different groups that we're interacting with in Matthew. We'll often see the crowd. The crowd is this group that's kind of interested in Jesus, wants to see the next miracle, but they might leave at any time. And then you've got these disciples. We could call them lowercase d disciples. These are the the group of people that are generally following Jesus, and they're mostly bought in. But there are these capital D disciples, we could say, and they are those who will eventually become the apostles, the 12. And the four fishermen back in chapter 4, and now Matthew in our, chap, our, our passage, will be one of those 12. These are the inner ring of Jesus' disciples. J- just remember, Jesus called four fishermen fishermen to be his disciples, not the elites, not the movers and shakers of the day, not the religiously credentialed, not the famous or powerful, not even those with capital who would be able to fund Jesus's ministry for fishermen, 
And he told them to leave their nets and boat and follow him. That's surprising enough, but then his fifth pick is even more shocking. A tax collector. And a Jewish tax collector. Matthew was no doubt a Jew. His alternate name was Levi, no doubt named after the tribe of Levi. Matthew, in Hebrew, probably means gift of Yahweh, which is quite a statement. Perhaps his parents were pious Jews who had high expectations for their son, Levi Matthew. But as some of you know, quite painfully, sometimes the parents' hopes and prayers for their children do not turn out as they hoped and prayed. And we don't know all the details or events, but we know from his name, Matthew, and his occupation that Matthew would have been considered a traitor to his people, a servant of occupying Rome. As a tax collector, he would be infamous for being a swindler, a cheat, an extortioner. I hope you don't tire when we come to tax collectors in the Bible that I give you a little bit of background because some in the room actually don't know what that means. They just think IRS agent. But these guys are much worse than any IRS agent. Tax collectors in these days had an agreement with Rome to get a certain amount for Rome from the district they'd been assigned And then the tax collector's personal compensation would be anything beyond that that they could shake out of people for themselves. And so by its very nature, it was a corrupt system. It attracted seedy people, greedy people, selfish, the swindling type. Tax collectors, well, often got rich. They were wealthy. And with their wealth, And with their low moral compass, they were infamous for wild parties, licentious living. They were the hated, the despised, the lowest of the low, the dirtiest of the dirty in their society. They were the drug cartels of Rome. They were the mobsters of their time. And this is Matthew. And there's Matthew one day sitting at his tax booth, there to collect from every passerby or with any goods, there to line his pockets with more, and he's just sitting as Jesus is nearby. Perhaps he has heard Jesus teach before, perhaps he's seen a miracle or two, we don't know, but he's sitting at his tax booth as he does day after day. But then Jesus walks by and says, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. He went on to not only be one of the twelve, but to write the very gospel account that we're reading and studying. We call it Matthew. Now, how do you explain such a thing? How do you explain who Jesus calls? And how do you explain that the one called just followed him? In some ways, Matthew's calling is unique. I mean, he actually saw the the bodily Jesus living, walking, speaking, breathing. He had a physical encounter with Jesus. 
He's also unique in that he's being called not just to believe in Jesus, not just follow him in a discipleship sense, but to literally follow him physically and to be one of the 12. But in many ways, this encounter there at the tax booth one day, it's analogous to how any of us come to follow Jesus. You see, it's not just an intellectual inquiry to become a Christian. It's not just a historical investigation. It's not just philosophical query. It may not be less than those things, but it must be more than those things. It's not merely a decision. It's not merely going from when you fill out some form of a religious survey, you didn't used to check the Christian box, but now you check the Christian box. No, at some point there has to be an encounter with Jesus. It has to get personal. you you got to feel like he's calling you. I mean, after all, he says to Matthew, follow me. Jesus says, me. Not follow my rules, though that's certainly part of following him. Not follow my way of life. Not merely identify with me. That's all certainly part of following him. But it's more personal than that. It's about him. It's an encounter. And when it gets personal, when there's that encounter with Christ, it's tractor beam stuff. You're drawn in. It's a summon. I wonder, has that ever happened to you or is it still just all theoretical? Maybe you'd say, it's not even theoretical. It's not personal either. I, you don't know me. Jesus isn't calling me. He wouldn't want me. You don't know what I've done. I'm too far gone and too bad off. Well, maybe that's why Jesus called Matthew the tax collector to himself so that we wouldn't have to wonder if Jesus can redeem the really bad ones. Another person might say, well, it's, it's intellectual for me, but it isn't personal. I'm not to the point of it getting personal or feeling called, per se. I, I still have questions, Ryan. I'm not sure Jesus really rose from the dead or whether this book is really the word of God. I'm still investigating. Okay, I understand. And many of us have been there. We've gone through that. But just a word of warning as you kick the tires of Christianity. At some point, they might kick back. At some point, this little experiment that you're doing investigating Jesus, it might get out of your hands. It might jump out of the Petri dish. It may spring off the spreadsheet. You may find yourself sucked in by grace. And when it does, man, that alters your life. And so Matthew left his tax booth that day Luke's account adds the detail that he left everything and followed Jesus. To follow Jesus, to really follow him, you too will likely leave something behind. Especially if you come to him as an adult. 
It may not be a job or a career like it was for Matthew, but inevitably there is something or some things in our lives that we've been clinging to, trusting in. Essentially, it's been our religion. And to embrace Jesus means that we have to let that other thing go. Have you done that? Christian, have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten some of this? Have you forgotten that Christ's call to you is not just theological, not just a decision, not just an identification? It's personal. Have you forgotten that to follow Jesus means that we leave behind what is incompatible with him? Christian, have you forgotten how undeserved his grace is? It stoops this low for all of us. His grace is a miracle for anyone, for everyone who gets saved. Have you forgotten that there is no one too far gone, no one beyond the reach of his saving grace? Have you forgotten that in a millisecond, he can summon anyone, anywhere, to himself? He can raise the dead physically. He can raise the dead spiritually. I hear people talk too often about this or that loved one that either seems close to Jesus or they are nowhere close to Jesus. In the latter category, it seems to be implied it's going to take a long time. It might, and it might not. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 might happen at any moment where God speaks creation light into a dark heart, and they come to know the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines on the face of Christ. That can happen in a second. And when it does, it is worthy of great celebration and telling others that it happened, which leads us to verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Which now leads us to this second section. A question of feasting. There's a question about feasting here. The question is actually with whom Jesus feasts. And that question is posed in verse 11. We'll get to it in a second. But let's first try to understand and appreciate the scene that led to the question. Matthew humbly skips the detail that Luke includes that it was Levi or Matthew who made Jesus a great feast in his house, and invited his friends. Nevertheless, whoever was behind it, we know Matthew was, but nevertheless, there is a feast. And it is for Jesus. It is with Jesus. It is also, no doubt, a celebration of Matthew's conversion and call. And it also includes Matthew's acquaintances and friends and co-workers, many of them, tax collectors, and sinners. 
We've already talked about tax collectors and what they were. Sinners, what are they? Well, that's just more broadly any other kind of famous sinner. The really bad sort. They may not be tax collectors, but these are people who are known for their sin. They are blatant in their sin. They are notorious for their sin. As one scholar put it, these are people such as pimps, prostitutes, thieves, and gamblers. These notorious sinners were not only in Matthew's house when Rabbi Jesus was there, but they were eating and reclining at table with Jesus. Don't picture sitting in chairs at your kitchen table. Picture a lower table, men on their elbows, one after another, lined up almost like laying down dominoes. In close proximity. That's why in the upper room, Jesus looks back to say something to someone who's behind him. He's right there. That kind of proximity with Jesus and sinners. Well, that would have been shocking and scandalous, especially to the religious and the pious, especially ones like the Pharisees. And the Pharisees saw this scene, and so they asked Jesus' disciples. Verse 11, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And their concern would have been multi-layered. This would have, of course, been an identification with those sinners, But meals in those days meant more than what they mean for us today. They meant approval, acceptance. We're in this together. You're good with God. I'm good with God. We're good with each other. It also would involve the question of purity, like ceremonial purity, being clean or unclean, that stuff in the Old Testament, which was really there in the Old Testament, but also was sort of exploded in tradition in the days of Jesus by such as the Pharisees. They would have been very concerned about this whole place where everything is unclean because these people are unclean and everything is being touched. You can't eat there. You shouldn't eat there. Well, Jesus would elsewhere explain it's not that which goes into a man that defiles him, His heart is already defiled. What comes out of his heart is defiled. Murders, hatred, wickedness of all sorts. That's Mark 7. What Jesus says here, though, in Matthew 9, is of a different approach, but it's no less profound. Verse 12 and 13, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then skip the quotation for just a bit. Verse 13, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. These are some of the most power-packed and profound words to ever be spoken. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus climbs into the world of the Pharisees, and he adopts their language in categories. The Pharisees were the ones who were obsessed with who is righteous and who are sinners. It was black and white, accepted, not accepted. You can touch them, you can't touch them. Of course, Jesus' theology is such, like the Apostle Paul's theology, is that there is none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. 
But Jesus takes on the language of the Pharisees, righteous, sinner, to turn their theology on its head. It's ironic. Or maybe it's not ironic. Maybe that's like the Alanis Morissette song where it's supposedly ironic, but things aren't really ironic. <laughs> Ask someone born in the 80s if you don't know about that. It's something. It might not be ironic, but it's something. It's curious. It's funny. It's a subtle rebuke to those who think themselves to be righteous, and it's a glorious invitation to those who know themselves to be sinners. It's like medicine. Those who have no need of a physician, they don't go to the doctors. They don't need to take medicine. They don't even think to take medicine. Nothing hurts. But with Jesus' mission, it's kind of like that. I have come to call those who are not spiritually well. I've come as a physician to those who know themselves to be spiritually sick, to be healing for them. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And perhaps it'll help us to understand these sayings better if we imagine Jesus doing air quotes here and there in these sayings. Now, now, don't make that a practice for other Bible reading. You don't want to say, God so loved the world that he gave his own. That, that's not a place for air quotes, but I think, I think Jesus was in our vernacular today, essentially communicating those who are well, not that there are any who are well, but there are those who think that they're well. I, I came not to call the righteous, not that there are any righteous, no, not one, but there are some who are pretty confident that they're good enough. And Jesus did not come for them. He didn't come for those who think that they're good with God because they're slightly better than some others. And that should be alarming to you. You should hear the negative of that saying. He did not come. In other words, he has nothing for. His mission and purposes do not involve you if you think you're good enough. If you're smug before God and others and self-sufficient, that should be alarming to you. He didn't come. That's not what his mission is about. He's got no words for you. Not yet. But perhaps you'd hear the welcome. Oh, how great is this welcome. He came for those who know themselves to be sinners. Jesus came for. This is what the incarnation is all about. This is his ministry. This is what he's up to. Jesus came for those who have given up comparing themselves in their measly good with others. He came for those who have come to the end of their rope. He came for those who have given up on their very best efforts and intentions and new resolutions. Charles Spurgeon, the old Baptist pastor, he said, it's so simple, man, men cannot believe it's true. If I were to bid you to take off your shoes and run from here to York and you would be saved, oh, you'd do it at once. But when it is nothing but the words believe, it is too easy for proud hearts to do. 
God has made the gospel too plain and too simple to suit proud hearts. Now, by the way, that phrase, I came, that just subtle phrase right there in verse 13, Jesus says, I came. That's curious if we think about that. Because no one talks that way. At least not in the ultimate sense that Jesus means here. We might say, I came to the grocery store for sour cream. Or we have come to the park for Sam's birthday. But Jesus is here referring to his whole life, his incarnation, his mission, what he's up to. And then by him saying he came to do this or that, it implies his pre-existence and his predetermined purpose. And no baby can talk like that, right? No baby has that kind of self-awareness. An alien might show up and say, I have come to earth for X, Y, or Z. But Jesus is no alien, and he doesn't just accidentally presume to know his purposes, his life purposes. He has come from his Father. There are these other I have come, I came statements that come from Jesus. We did a whole sermon series on them back in December of 2020, I believe. If we read on in Matthew, we'd come to another one in chapter 20 where Jesus says that the Son of Man came. What's next? He came, what for? Why? To give his life as a ransom for many. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He came as well to seek them at this extent to give his life as a ransom for them. That's the cross. Jesus dying in the place of the sinners that he came for. The cross is the full extent. That's the, that's the full measure of him coming for sinners that he died for them and was raised in the third day. And that feast happening at Matthew's house with sinners was just a foretaste of the scandalous pursuit of sinners that Jesus would show culminating at the cross. So has he come for you like that? Do you hear him call you today? We sang earlier, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. If you tarry, if you wait till you're better, oh, you'll never come at all. But all the fitness that he requires is for you to feel your need of him the song says, so I will arise and go to Jesus and he will embrace me in his arms. I pray you'd know that today. Now we skipped talking about part of verse 13 and that was intentional. It's the quotation between those well-known sayings about sickness and about sinners. Verse 13, go and learn what this means, Jesus says. No, take this home, think about it, chew on this for a while. Hosea 6.6 6 says this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In Hosea 6, God was rebuking his people for their 
empty religion. And he was announcing soon coming judgment, but he was also calling them back to true religion. And true religion isn't ultimately sacrifice, duty, obedience, and commitment. No, God's highest desires for his people are not in their discipline or duty or performance because they can never do enough of that to earn his favor. What he desires is mercy. Mercy. He desires to show mercy to those who know they need it. But he also desires mercy in this sense to create a people who have been so touched by his mercy that they understand mercy. And now they give mercy. They are the merciful. Like Matthew was with his tax collector friends, inviting them to meet his friend and savior, Jesus. And like Jesus was there in Matthew's living room that day, Jesus was not only showing us how he welcomes us if we call ourselves sinners. But he was also showing us what to do. He was giving us an example. How are we doing? How are we doing, Desert Springs Church? How is your family doing? How are you doing at seeking the lost? I mean the lost lost, not just the kind of lost, not the pretty lost, not the smell good kind of lost, not the relatable lost, not the lost just like you? Are there certain kinds of people that you intentionally avoid and you know you're never going to get close enough to them to share the gospel with them? Maybe it's because of a different race, a different skin color, different finances, different neighborhood, different politics, different sexual background. Oh, we call people to repentance, but we also have to remember that you actually have to be near them to be able to call them to repentance. You have to be around them long enough for them to really hear what you're saying when you call them to repentance. Like Matthew, like Jesus. Well, thirdly, there is a question of fasting in the rest of our passage. Let me just read and reread verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Earlier there was the question of feasting. Now here's the question of fasting. Some background might help. There was only one prescribed, commanded fast in the whole Old Testament. It's in Leviticus 16 in connection with the Day of Atonement. So there's a once a year command to fast in the Old Testament. And that's it. There are other fasts that were mentioned in the Old Testament, often around devastating circumstances. So you think of Nehemiah. When he hears of the ruins of Jerusalem, he prays and fasts. But these kind of fasts of the Old Testament, apart from the Day of Atonement one, they were volitional. They were optional. They were personal, not commanded or required. 
Now, John the Baptist and his disciples, they were pro-Jesus, but they fasted. And that really did fit with the ministry of John the Baptist as a preparer for the Messiah who was to come. John the Baptist's ministry was by nature rough and harsh, uh, gritty. That's why he ate grasshoppers and wore camel hair. In addition to that, they also, he and his disciples routinely fasted. As for the Pharisees, well, we know that they fasted two times a week, specific days. Everyone did it together. We also know from Matthew 6, according to Jesus, that they put on quite a show about their fasting. On those days, they made their faces look gaunt. They let everyone know, I'm fasting, I'm fasting. We know Jesus doesn't like that kind of fasting. But Jesus and his disciples don't fast. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness before his temptation from Satan. But otherwise, there's no mention of Jesus or his disciples fasting. And so the question, the concern has been registered with Jesus. The, the disciples of John the Baptist say, why is it? And Jesus will then answer them with three Many illustrations. And each of them are like a mismatch. These things don't go together. He's saying these two things are not compatible with each other. And the first has to do with a wedding. He says, you don't fast at a wedding, do you? I mean, you shouldn't. It'd be stupid to. You're not going to stick to your diet at your daughter's wedding, are you? Not if you're sane. Right? No one does that. So Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? A wedding is not a time for a fast. Remarkably, Jesus gives this word picture of a bridegroom in a wedding with all kinds of Old Testament background behind it. I mean, God had been preparing an age to come when he would come to his people and he would redeem and keep them as his bride. And so there are these references in the Old Testament to God coming as the bridegroom to come and care for his bride. Hosea 2 and Isaiah 62 and all over Hosea and Ezekiel. And Jesus is personifying all that. He's using that language of himself. He's saying, I'm here. I'm the bridegroom. The bridegroom has shown up. The time for the wedding is getting started. Fasting doesn't fit this moment. It doesn't fit this age. This is a season of celebration, like weddings. Now, Jesus does go on to say in verse 15 that there are days coming when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast, which raises the question, when? He's the bridegroom. When will he be taken away so that they fast? There are two options. Some believe it's the ascension, so that he's gone the whole period of time from his ascension to his second coming, almost 2,000 years so far. The other view, though, which I favor, is that the bridegroom is taken away at the crucifixion. That specifically is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the crucifixion weekend. 
You say, well, why? Why is it that? Why is it not the other? Why is it not the ascension? Well, just the word itself, taken away. In Greek, it's a, it's a special word. It literally means a violent, unwelcomed removal. That's the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion. It's not the ascension. It doesn't say the bridegroom will go away. It doesn't say the bridegroom won't be there. It doesn't say the bridegroom will, you know, leave them for a little bit. It, He's taken away. He's ripped from them. That's Friday. Now, what's that mean for fasting now for us as Christians? Well, hold on to that question because there are two more illustrations briefly before we answer that question that I know will be looming for some. There's the sowing illustration in verse 16 where Jesus says, you don't sow a new patch onto old clothes. And you don't have to be a seamstress to get this. Things shrink, right? So a new patch put on an old garment, well, it looks good at first, but then when it gets washed, the new patch shrinks and it tears away from the hole, leaving a bigger hole than before. Or the third illustration, wine, verse 17. Jesus says you don't put new wine into old wineskins. You'd put wine into wineskins and as it ferments, it would expand. You get about one use or so of a wineskin with new wine in it. So if you have an old wineskin, you put new wine in it, it expands, it's reached its capacity. Pop! Wineskin's done, the wine is on the ground. No, you, you put new wine into new wineskins. And what Jesus is saying is that he has come to bring something greater, more powerful than the old wineskins of the old religion could possibly hold. Whether he means that the old wineskins are the, main, uh, the man-made religion stuff of the Jewish traditions, the rabbinic traditions, or whether he means the old wineskins of the old covenant religion as it was found in the Old Testament, it doesn't matter. It's both true. It's true for both of them. Jesus has come to bring something that neither of those can contain. Jesus has come to bring a new covenant. Jesus has come with promises and responsibilities for his followers that are far greater than the old religion could hold. Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 is a passage, if you need help on that, to think through how the old and the new relate. Yes, it's one Bible, but there is a reason there is old and there is new. Jesus is doing a new thing, to quote DC Talk. <laughs> this is what Jesus has already been saying in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You've heard it said, but I say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here it is personified. It's like a, it's like a new patch on a new garment. It's like new wine in new wineskins. This is what his coming means. So how does that relate to fasting then? The question remains, is fasting still something Christians should do? Well, keep in mind, Jesus taught his disciples back in chapter six of Matthew what to do when they fast, not if they fast. It kind of presumes they're gonna keep fasting. When you fast, don't be like the Pharisees. He already gave those directions. And don't forget that fasting is found a couple of times in the book of Acts. 
at significant moments like Acts 13 before Paul and Barnabas are sent out to Macedonia to the mission field. But otherwise, you should just keep this in mind, otherwise fasting is not mentioned in the New Testament, let alone prescribed in the rest of the New Testament. And there were parts of the Old Testament that spoke of a day coming when fasting would give way to feasting. Like Zechariah 8, your various feasts shall one day be seasons of joy, gladness, cheerful feasts. And Jesus feasting with the sinners in Matthew 9 is something like a sign that that has already begin, begun to dawn. Even though there is coming a day when we will feast even greater. Right? When Jesus returns, there will be the great supper of the Lamb, the great heavenly banquet. That doesn't mean that now we're in an era or season that is best described by or personified in, exemplified in, fasting. Jesus is saying we're right now in, in a time of feasting. That's what his coming even his first coming has meant. This day has dawned. We now feast. Now Christians can certainly fast. I'm not saying don't fast. You're free to fast. But you shouldn't require others to do it. And you should never think that you can fast to get God's approval or earn points with him or prove to him somehow how serious you are about this thing you want and are praying for. Don't use fasting that way. We should never see fasting as a mark of our spirituality looking down on others who fast less or not at all. But we must, most importantly, be a people, even now, marked by joy and celebration, and mercy. Christ has come. He has come for us, sinners. We've been justified, declared righteous, not on account of anything that we did or could ever do, but all because of what Christ has already done. That's reason to celebrate. He's done it all. He has promised countless blessings, adoption, inheritance, unchanging, imperishable in heaven waiting for us. He has not left us. He's not bodily here on this earth. But just as he said in John 14 and 16, he has come to us in the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's not left us alone. He's with us. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit indwelling within us it's the stuff of love, joy, peace. Even in the midst of some difficult circumstances. Oh, there's much in the New Testament about trials and hardship and sorrows, being weary. Things just being mysterious and confounding. But we are hopeful that there is more to come. He's not done. As good as it is, there's more to come. And he's even using the hardships of this life for our refinement. They are actually for our good. We can actually count it all, what? Joy 
when you have various trials. Even now, when we're sorrowful, we can say with Paul, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We can say with Peter, though you have not yet seen him, you love him. Though you are not yet with him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Now even while you weep. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do, do it all to the glory of God and invite others to come in. Go out into the byways. Go out to the hedges and compel people to come in that our master's house would be full. Let's pray. Oh, yes, Lord, we await the day when we shall feast with our Savior, our friend, in perfect peace, when death will be no more and there'll be no more mourning or pain. But we're not there yet. So give us longing where that's needed in this pilgrimage we're on. And Lord, give us joy. Give us divinely wrought, spirit-wrought, supernatural joy even in the midst of our pain as we wait for a day where there's something better. Oh, we thank you, Lord, that you have drawn near to us. You draw near to sinners. We pray that perhaps for some today, you would draw near to them for the very first time and they would sense that you are calling them. May they follow you today, Lord Jesus. Amen.